0: Tonight's gospel reading, Jesus is rejoicing. In that same hour, we read, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit. The cause of Jesus' joy is God's prerogative of reversal, God's penchant for turning the ordinary arrangements of power and accrual upside down. Jesus is overjoyed because God chooses exactly the people that we wouldn't choose. Jesus rejoices in the Holy Spirit. He praises God because God has hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Jesus' joy in our gospel reading is part of a larger lesson about the nature of Christian joy in Luke chapter 10. This joy is one moment within a larger cascade of rejoicing that occurs in the verses that precede the ones we just read. In those immediately preceding verses in Luke chapter 10, the 72 disciples have just returned from a circuit of missionary work that Jesus has sent them out on. The 72 return rejoicing, eagerly exclaiming to Jesus that even the demons, Are subject to us in your name. Jesus responds to the disciples' rejoicing firstly, as any affectionate friend, parent, or companion should respond. He responds by entering into the disciples' celebration, by affirming their joy. So we read earlier in in chapter 10 and he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. So first, Jesus is like, yes, isn't that amazing that even the demons are subject to you? But then having affirmed the disciples' joy, Jesus pushes them on into a yet deeper joy. Nevertheless, Jesus goes on, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are. Are written in heaven. When Jesus says, rejoice that your names are written in heaven, he certainly means rejoice in your own salvation. Rejoice that you're saved. But he also means rejoice that you are saved, as in rejoice in the fact that it's folks like you that God has saved, folks like you. The seemingly unworthy ones, the ones who can't save themselves by dint of their own knowledge or piety. Delight, Jesus is saying, in the fact that God has come to save a pack of ragamuffins instead of the people who are so put together they're liable not to know that they even need to be saved. Rejoice, Jesus says, that this is the kind of God who saved you. In light of that, of those prior verses, When we come to the first verse of our gospel reading and we hear Jesus praising God because God's hidden these things from the wise and understanding, and that God's revealed those things to little children, it should become clear that it's the disciples, the 72, who Jesus is calling little children. Our reading from the prophet Isaiah reinforces this theme of joyful reversal, albeit in a slightly more subtle way. Here, broadly speaking, the Messiah is portrayed as one whose delight in God results in unlikely outcomes. The result of the Messiah's joy, Isaiah says, is that the kinds of folks who almost always get the short end of the stick, for once, they end up having things decided in their favor. The Messiah's delight, Isaiah says, shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. Isaiah is contrasting judgment on the basis of righteousness and equity on the one hand with judgment on the basis of what a person sees or hears on the other The reason for this is because the strong and the powerful have the ability to control their appearance and their reputation, to control how they are seen, and to influence what people say about them. Typically, those who have much are seen to have much, and those who have the capacity to return favors are the ones who are spoken well of. But the Messiah will not decide on the basis of ordinary social capital. Instead, he will judge the poor with righteousness, and he will decide in favor of the meek. Listening to these two passages in concert, it implies a contrast in kinds of knowing, a contrast in knowing. It's a contrast between wisdom and understanding and revelation, or seeing through a kind of divine disclosure. The first kind of knowing is a knowledge about, like I have knowledge about species of oak trees in the southeastern part of the United States. I can tell you pretty reliably whether that tree over there is a water oak or a schumart oak. If you hand me a a handful of different acorns, I could probably tell you with some accuracy which subspecies of oak tree they came from. So I know about some kinds of trees. That's the first kind of knowing. It's a kind of knowledge that can be attained, that you can decide to go out and get for yourself through your own initiative and effort and ability. For me, it's a knowledge that I attained when I was trying to avoid attaining other kinds of knowledge in seminary. This first kind of knowledge is a knowledge that once you attain it, it can be credited to you as your own achievement, But the kind of knowing Jesus rejoices in, in our gospel reading, it's something totally different. First of all, it's not a knowledge about, but a knowledge of. It's a question of who you know, a relational knowledge. No one knows who the Son is, Jesus says. There aren't any grades or diplomas for the kind of knowledge Jesus finds so delightful. You don't get to put it on your resume or use it in job interviews or to impress people or to make yourself feel smarter or more powerful than other people. The kind of knowledge Jesus rejoices in is a knowing that no amount of effort or study even can give you. It's knowing that is literally out of reach for humans. In fact, it's a knowledge that's nothing less than divine. No one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is, except the Son. And yet, even though this is a knowledge that is out of reach of human effort, some humans have nonetheless managed to receive it. That is precisely the thing Jesus finds so delightful in this passage. He's rejoicing at the fact that some folks, some of the unlikeliest folks, The least credentials, the least important people, they have come to know him, the Son of God. And that's because the Son of God has chosen to reveal himself, to make himself known to people who are like little children, to ragamuffins, to a pack of strays like you and me. Do you find all of that delightful? Does it bring you joy? Are we pleased by God's habit of reversal? Do we rejoice the way Jesus rejoices in this passage? Those are important questions for we Christians, perhaps especially during the season of Advent. During this season, you don't have to be a Christian to see words like joy bandied about on crap you find at TJ Maxx or in strings of lights in people's yards. This time of year, joy is liable to be reduced to one more artifact of the sentimental kitsch of the holiday season. But the joy of Advent is so powerful and peculiar that our very salvation is at stake in it. So let me ask that question again. Do we rejoice at the fact that God keeps himself hidden from the wise and understanding, but reveals himself to little children If we don't rejoice at that, it's probably because we've settled for lesser joys. It's probably not so much that we don't believe that God gives himself to the childlike, to the meek, to the poor, but that we decidedly do not want to be any of those things ourselves. And maybe even more so, we don't want to associate with those kinds of people. Our gospel reading ends... With Jesus exclaiming to the disciples, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. Many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it. What the disciples are getting to see, of course, is Jesus. And during the season of Advent, that's who we're trying to see. But our readings tonight remind us that it matters a great deal where we go looking to find him where we expect Jesus to be revealed. Where are you looking for Jesus? Among whom, in whose company, do you expect Jesus will be revealed? The Bible makes it relentlessly clear that the places Jesus actually does show up are almost always exactly those places. And among those people, we are most in the habit of overlooking Jesus rejoices that God has hidden himself from the wise and understanding and instead has revealed himself to the disciples, people who are like little children compared to all the important, powerful, smart people. Jesus tells his disciples, rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Be glad that God is a God who saves people like you. But the disciples are basically all the kids that didn't get picked to play at recess, So is that the kind of people we want to be? What about you? Some of you definitely are the kids that didn't get picked to play at recess. Others of you still can pass for a cool kid. You may still have that card in your pocket for now. But I bet all of you are still liable to overlook the places and the people of poverty, of loneliness, of meekness in your life. Where are you in this pattern of joyful reversal? Do you live your life on the lookout for the joyful discovery that all the people who didn't get invited to the cool kids party did get invited to Jesus party? Is that who you invite to your party We all have habits of selecting some people, criteria by which some people make the cut and others don't. We all have patterns of expectation, expectation about who goodness is going to come from, who has something to contribute, who ought to be part of the A-team, and vice versa, who's liable to be a problem, who's liable to be socially off-key, or who's going to ruin the vibe. And if what you're after is to curate a group of friends who is the most Instagrammable or a web of connections who has the most potential to return whatever favors you may have to offer. If you choose the people in your circle based off a calculus of investment and return, and your main concern is to make sure you don't waste your time, then your existing habits of selection and expectation may work out just fine if all of those things are your goals. But if your goal is to know Jesus... None of that's going to work. In fact, I bet your experience actually bears this out. Let's be honest for a second. If you actually got to pick hand pick your friends, or if you actually got to hand pick the people who made up the community of the Wesley, do you think that you would pick the right ones? Think of the times in your life when you did try to pick your friends. Think of the people who were conspicuous to you as the right kind of people to be friends with. Or maybe the ones you just couldn't believe actually included you in their orbit because it seemed to you like they were a cut or two above your rung on the social ladder. How did that pan out for you? Did those people you picked turn out to be good friends? Were they the ones who really came through for you in the clutch? Or did it turn out that it was the people whose friendship you took for granted? Now let's think about your experience of Christian community. Let's say your Let's say, like for example, like an experience in a, in a like a small group or community group type, type setting, or maybe if you've been on a Wesley mission trip, maybe like in mission meetings. And let's imagine, like some of you are, that you're like a leader of one of these meetings. Like you're on the discipleship team, or you're a staff member. Think about the places and the times where Jesus showed up most surprisingly in those meetings. The moments when the Holy Spirit really knocked you and everyone else on your butt in a good way. Were those the moments that went exactly according to the plan that you made for that meeting? Did the Holy Spirit move because you were so perfectly prepared or because you had already figured out all the right answers to the discussion questions? Did the goodness in those moments come from the people in the room you thought it would? Was it the people in the room who always talk a lot, the people who would have been the Sunday school teacher's favorite? Or instead, did it come from the quiet person or from someone who you know is an actual total screw-up or someone who isn't even sure they're a Christian? Where's the lowliness in your everyday life? Who are the meek and the overlooked in your life? Who are the people who are too awkward or too wounded or too unchristian to get invited? If you let the answers to questions like those guide your attention, you'll be looking in the right places when Jesus comes. In our gospel, Jesus is rejoicing. And that's who we meet whenever we come to this table as well, a rejoicing Messiah, When we come to this table, we are entering Jesus' joy. That's why if you look closely at a communion liturgy, sometimes you'll see the person who's leading it called a celebrant. Because communion is supposed to be a party, a celebration. In our gospel reading tonight, Jesus lifts up his voice joyfully to worship the Father in the Holy Spirit And so it is that every time we celebrate communion, we begin by inviting each other to lift up our hearts to the Lord. In just a minute, I'll invite you to lift up your hearts to the Lord, and you'll affirm together in song, it is right to give our thanks and praise. And I'll reply, it is right, and it's joyful. The reason communion communion is joyful is because Jesus is rejoicing. But that means communion humbles us. And that by humbling us, it changes the company we keep. We can't see Jesus at the communion table through human knowledge. Merely human knowledge could only come up to this table and watch what we do and respond, what is all this weird Catholic ritual stuff? That's not the Messiah. It's just bread and grape juice or worse, wine. To which Jesus would reply, I thank you, Father, for hiding these things from the wise and understanding. Likewise, if we expect to find Jesus when we come to this table, we'll have to leave behind our membership card in the Cool Kids Club, for it's the children, the meek and the poor, the lowly and the left out, whose eyes are blessed to see Jesus and to enter together into his joy. Amen.